0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. My name is Dr. Danielle Campaign, and I am your American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with two co-hosts, Dr. Whitney Johnson and Dr. Patil Armenian. Good morning. And Dr. Whitney Johnson's new... uh, Whitney, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Thank you guys both for having me here today. Um, I'm one of the chief residents of the UCSF Fresno Emergency Medicine Program here at Community Regional. And I'm excited to be here and hope I do a good job because Patil
0: and Danielle are both my bosses. Oh, you're going to do amazing. Yeah,
2: you're amazing.
0: So today we're going to talk about smoke inhalation.
2: Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit en route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on.
0: Here comes American.
2: Get your lights on.
0: Here comes American.
2: Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. So I think this is a topic that comes up a lot, not just in medicine, but just in, you know, TV shows and real life. And you just hear these stories about people who, let's say, ran into a fire to save someone, uh, like in the show, This Is Us, where the dad kind of runs in, and then he does okay. And then later on um, in that day, he passes away from smoke inhalation. And everyone's always yeah. always like, what? Yeah, I always wonder that why that happened. Yeah, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the things that you're exposed to in a house fire that aren't necessarily burns themselves. So we're going to talk about carbon monoxide and cyanide poisoning from smoke inhalation.
0: So Patil, you are a board-certified toxicologist. I know this is near and dear to your heart, but Um, why is cyanide such
2: an important topic? Like what what does cyanide do? When would I see it? Um, The way we get exposed to it the most is through the burning of plastics um, and other kind of petroleum byproducts. So a huge one is PVC piping. So we have tons of PVC pipes um, all through our homes. You burn PVC pipe or any of like those polyurethanes and plastics that are in homes and you're going to form... Um, cyanide basically and not just um, like it's not a cyanide that you eat but it's a cyanide you breathe in through the air which is definitely one of the fastest ways somebody could die
0: now wit how often does this happen like do i got to worry about cyanide poisoning on every case i see in the ed or how often do we see this what's the what's the numbers on these
1: Uh, Yeah, so that's actually a good question. And the big thing is that smoke inhalation actually occurs quite frequently here in the United States. And specifically burn fatalities are are about 10,000 fatalities every year. And 60 to 80% of those are due to The effects of smoke inhalation. So, approximately 35% of all fire victims that were tested when they presented to the emergency department ended up having some toxic levels of cyanide or one of its um, partners in crime, which is carbon monoxide, in their blood at initial presentation. So, as you can see, that some of those fire related inhalations. Are, it's really important to act very quickly on those because they are rapidly occurring and it's a real fatal exposure like Patil was saying. It only takes about 200 milligrams of cyanide uh, to kill someone.
0: Now, these are tests that we get uh, same day at CRMC, or these are send-outs, or how would I, you know, they come in the emergency department, I suspect I'm just going to treat, right, and not yeah, wait so test Yeah, so if you
2: suspect back. you're going to treat, this is not something you wait for a test level. Actually, cyanide levels in almost every hospital are send-out tests, so that means even for us in a hospital, it would take us about a week to get the result, and guess what? That doesn't help you when you have somebody dying in front of you right now, um, one one thing we can test in the hospital quickly is a lactic acid level. And so their lactate um, will be really high. But again, that takes time to come back. And we're not going to be waiting for that to treat um, as we're going to kind of get into right now.
0: Now, let's go back to some myths, though. I've heard that I can smell cyanide. So if there's a fire and I say somebody, it's okay, because I didn't smell anything. Is that true?
1: That's actually a really good question. Unfortunately, not all of us are like the X-Men. So, that actual ability to smell cyanide is only present in about 20% of the population. So, I wouldn't bank on that. So, I will not be a hero.
2: Or well, really in I- a in a house fire, you're just smelling smoke anyway. You you're not going to smell anything else. What about sure. carbon monoxide?
0: Can't smell it either, right? That's odorless, um, and you can't see it either, right? So uh, that's why we have all those carbon dioxide detectors in our houses. That uh, I think the law makes us have one in every in every residence.
1: Rightfully so. Um, definitely make sure that your battery actually works.
0: Now, talking about pathophys. I know this is the the kind of um, really at the cellular level. Like, what does cyanide do to our cells?
2: So cyanide basically stops. Um, stops your mitochondria from working and from making ATP. So the bottom line is, is that your cells can't use the oxygen that they're getting. Cellular respiration stops. And so that means your cells kind of stop working. And so especially in a house fire, what little oxygen that you do get isn't being put to use because the cyanide is basically um, stopping your mitochondria from working. We can get into it in a lot more detail, but I feel like that's kind of like a good descriptor. Like all of a sudden, your body can't use oxygen anymore. And
0: that kind of makes sense. Then I'm going to start, I'm lack of oxygen. So it's like, I'm suffocating, I'm getting headaches, you're starting to get nauseous, I feel short of breath, you get confused, And then you start passing out, right? And then you can seize and have cardiovascular collapse. And
2: really similar things happen with carbon monoxide. And so that's why we lump them in together because they look the same. And what carbon monoxide does is that the hemoglobin in your blood wants to bind to carbon monoxide stronger than to regular oxygen. And so then what happens is um, it binds the hemoglobin in your red blood cells binds to carbon monoxide, then doesn't want to let it go. And so then your cells don't get oxygen. So you're in this, so you're dealing with two things that are basically not letting your body use the oxygen it needs for cells to work. Even if that oxygen is floating around your bloodstream. And that's why we call them asphyxiants. So when we're talking about smoke inhalation, we're talking about different chemicals that do different things. So one of those is asphyxiants, which means you can't use oxygen anymore. And then you have a whole class of things called irritants. And those are things like formaldehyde, formic acid, these things that just kind of make you cough and irritate your lungs. Those can cause a lot of damage too, but they're not the ones that are killing you instantly like these two things are.
0: So let's talk about the protocol. So in our local um, SEMSA protocols, we're going to be on burns, right? This is going to be our protocol. We're going to follow.
2: Correct. This is in the burns protocol. Um, and, uh, the bottom line is for all of these oxygen delivery is key. So, um, so if they have possible carbon monoxide exposure, then we're going to do, um, either a non-rebreather or an advanced airway if needed. Um, and, Uh, Although cyanide isn't mentioned in our SEMSA protocols, uh, in my mind, I just kind of lump them in together where it doesn't really matter why somebody is, um, you know, passed out or feeling sick from a house fire, no matter what, you put some form of oxygen on them and increase oxygen delivery to their tissues. And uh, no matter what the cause is, that oxygen is going to help them.
0: And things that could hint um, the medic into this is, right, maybe singed nasal hair or facial hair, maybe abnormal lung sounds, or maybe um, they could be a little altered, but they look fine otherwise, or they're um, struggling having respiratory issues, but not a single burn on them, right? Those would be some clues that maybe the smoke inhalation is more the cause than, quote, the burn.
2: And the story is really helpful. So Was it in an enclosed space or was it outdoors? Kind of what was the location? How long was somebody in there? So any type of information like that that you could get from uh, from the scene is helpful Um, because if you start thinking of enclosed spaces and being in there for a while, no matter what kind of building that is, whether it's a home or an industrial setting or an office building, all of the things that make modern buildings can cause cyanide. Um, to be formed in the air when they burn.
0: I'm sure if you had like a plastics recycling place that catches on fire, it would even be more suspicious. That would be
2: bad. You know what's really bad, actually, if you burn a mattress. So that's why, you know, one of the terrible things in a house fire is mattresses burning because they're formed out of polyurethane foam usually. And so one mattress can can make enough cyanide gas in the air to kill multiple people.
0: Now tell me about the antidotes. So say the medic recognizes they have a smoke inhalation, they're taking them to, you know, uh, for us, the regional trauma center, the burn center, or another hospital, and then they're going to get transferred to us. Like, what is the hope? What's the antidotes?
2: So in in the United States, our EMS system is different than in places like Europe, for example. So in France, um, their ER doctors aren't in hospitals. They're actually on the rig. Uh, and so they do things a little bit differently. For example, um, they actually carry one of the cyanide antidotes on the ambulances and on the scene of a house fire, they already start administering it to patients. And that's actually where a lot of our data comes from. Um, and so, um, and so one of the, one of the antidotes that we're going to talk about in a second called hydroxycobalamin is just given on ambulances there. Now, this is not something that uh, we do in the the U.S., and it's not something that we do in our SEMSA system, uh, primarily because our mentality here is to try to transport as fast as possible. And so we're not in a stay-and-play EMS mentality. We're more of a just transport quickly yeah, like mentality, load and, load and go mentality, exactly. And so um, and so for that reason, we don't um, stock any cyanide antidotes um, on the ambulances. Um, but once they get to the hospital, we do have some options. There's an older one that was called, we used to call it the Lily kit, but basically it was a cyanide antidote kit consisting of amyl nitrite, sodium nitrite, and sodium thiosulfate. And what you would do is you would induce a methemoglobinemia with the amyl nitrite and sodium nitrite. you got to break
0: that down for those of us that are not toxicologists, because that's a lot of big words in one sentence. I know. You know
2: what? The bottom line is this. Basically, with these, you are inducing something called methemoglobinemia, which is another entity where your hemoglobin and your red blood cells can't carry oxygen appropriately. Then you would give this other thing called sodium thiosulfate that would... Um, That would then bind to the methemoglobin, and then cyanide would then bind to all that and kind of take it out of play. So it's like a cyanide binder is what you're doing Yeah, The issue, though, is that you really don't want to induce a methemoglobinemia in somebody who already has decreased oxygen-carrying capacity. So we would never do this in somebody in a house fire because they already, you know, have decreased oxygen-carrying capacity because of the carbon monoxide that's in the air And then they actually don't have oxygen in the air. That's what's happening because of the house fire. There's no oxygen. And then what? You're going to give them one more hit to their system so they have less oxygen. So we're not really going to do that. Um, The good news is there's another antidote uh, that's um, only been available in the U.S. since 2006 that we have available.
0: And this is the hydroxycobalamin one, right? Right.
1: Yeah, so commercially it's called the Cyano Kit. Uh, I know that we have it here in our emergency department. And basically what it is, it's a precursor to vitamin B12 that is used as another type of binder that will kind of help with in the case of cyanide poisonings. This is much better than um, the prior antidote that Patil was talking about because this one generally has a, a much better therapeutic profile, minimal toxicity, and it's uh, readily excreted, excreted in the urine.
0: And so this empiric treatment is very safe, right? I mean, I think of uh as vitamins, right? That's vitamin B12. Yeah,
1: it, it does have a really good safety pro- profile to it. When you look at it compared to the former kit, that one, some of the residual side effects that you had to be worried about was these transient episodes of hypotension. Uh, in regards to using the hydroxycobalamin, though, really the only side effect profile that you think about or consider that the patient has transient hypertension, which we're pretty okay with. I'd be less inclo- I'd be more worried
0: about the low blood pressure.
2: Yeah, it's really well tolerated. It's, it's pretty great, actually.
0: Now, in Europe, that you talked about giving um, this antidote like pre-hospital. So their EMS system is going to give it on the scene. You know, we give it usually in the ER, or the ICUs. any good studies out there talking about does it help?
1: So, yeah, actually, one of the studies that Patil alluded to earlier, actually one of the first big papers published in the United States, was a study that assessed the outcomes in patients that were administered hydroxycobalamin both pre-hospital or in the ICU for suspected smoke inhalation-associated cyanide poisoning. Um, It was a decent study, observational, that lasted a few years, uh, and they took about 69 patients uh, and administered the antidote either in the out out of hospital setting or in the ICU. And ultimately found that with the empiric administration of this, that the uh, survival percentage was about 67%.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it would be great to have it pre-hospital. And I think some uh, places are doing it in the United States, but it is very expensive. So I think one of those is cost prohibitive and it's a very rare thing that's given. I think it's only given a few times a year in our whole county um, in the hospital setting. And so maybe that's why um, it's not here in the SEMSA protocols, because it is um, to carry it on every ambulance and have it everywhere It'd be just really cost prohibitive.
2: Yeah, we just don't have enough cases to justify carrying it when our, uh, when our kind of scene-to-door times are so fast around here. I think we just do such a good job with getting people to the hospital quickly that it becomes less of an issue in our system.
0: Now, let, what are some take-home points uh, for the medics and EMTs listening to this podcast? Whitney?
1: I think one of the biggest take-home points is uh, an appropriate assessment of your ABCs and getting the patient on supplemental oxygen, whether you're suspicious of cyanide or carbon monoxide. In both those cases, this is the most uh, uh, beneficial thing that you could do to support the patient and potentially save a lot of lives that way.
2: I think it's also really helpful just to quickly get the story. Um, Was it in an enclosed space or outdoors? And and, you know, how long were people stuck in there? Because that will help us um, in the hospital later make a quick decision on whether to give them antidotes or not.
0: And I just say, keep this in the back of your mind. You can suspect a smoke inhalation is a cause of uh, uh, respiratory distress or even death later on if someone was exposed to a fire earlier in the day. And so it's all about the history when you
2: come upon uh, a, an arrest. And and then back to carbon monoxide for a second. Again, the number one thing, just like Whitney said, is oxygen, oxygen, oxygen. So nothing has been shown to help carbon monoxide patients except for oxygen. podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks.
0: Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.